started the year with a two-week overview of the whole of the Bible. And we were looking at how the Bible can be seen as a play in five acts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. And we were looking at how that relates to our theme for the year of drawing near. How it's the story of God drawing near to us first through the covenants, then the person of Jesus himself, and how then the church responds to that and draws near to God. And then last week we moved on from that. So we moved from our global view of the whole Bible down to our, our Roman Atlas view of the Bible, looking at one particular book, the book of Exodus, and one particular man. Man was looking at the story of Moses. And as we came down the level from the global to, to, to the, the next level down, the mid-view level, we also moved down the level in looking at our view of the theme for the year, draw near. And we were drilling in to draw near. And over the four weeks that we're looking at Moses in Exodus, we're going to cover four areas. Last week, Josh talked about how we can break down barriers of mindsets that prevent us from encountering the fullness of God. He talked about the way we can do this through the five R's of recognize, receive, repent, rebuke, and replace. And how that enabled us to draw near to God. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to follow Moses as we look at cultivating passion and hunger for God next week, and then developing humility and purity <coughs> the following week. But this week, our kind of sub-theme is raising expectations. So, where are we in the story of Moses? Well, after God spoke to him in the burning bushes we heard about last week, what happened next? Moses goes back to Egypt and starts work on freeing the Israelites. He starts by going to see Pharaoh. Now this is going to be quite a long, drawn out process, persuading Pharaoh. It's not going to be easy. In fact, the first time Moses goes to see Pharaoh, he kind of makes things worse before things get better, because Pharaoh says, well, if you've got time to go and worship God, you've got time to do more work. And so he ups the workload on the Israelite slaves. And he tells them, now you're going to have to go and collect your own straw for making bricks, rather than us supplying you with the straw. But Moses persists. And the series of plagues come. Very well-known story, I'm sure most people know about the plagues, even if they can't remember all of them in order, most people know about the series of plagues that came. And through these plagues, Pharaoh's mind is gradually changed. We read that uh, when the plague of frogs comes, Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for it. Yes, to pray for the frogs to go away. So it's a start of the movement. But as soon as the frogs are gone, Pharaoh forgets all about it. Then, in the plague of flies, Pharaoh gives permission for the Israelites to worship God. But he doesn't let them go. He says, you can worship God here in Egypt. Then, 
says, okay, you can go, but only the men can go. The women and children will have to stay. And then eventually, the plague of the death of the firstborn. When the angel of death passes over, and the firstborn of all the Egyptian families is killed. Finally, Pharaoh says, I've had enough. Don't. Get out of here. They were no longer slaves. They were free. This is an incredible moment. Something they've been dreaming of for years. Something they've been dreaming of for generations. And not only were they free to go, they were free to take all their possessions, their, their, their animals with them. Not even that. But they went and asked the Egyptians to give them gold and silver, and the Egyptians gave them gold and silver to take with them. This was an incredible, whopping great miracle. There could be no doubt about it. This was God at work. This was God saving them. And in case they weren't sure, God went with them in the form of a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And this is why our reading this morning picks up the story. Because suddenly Pharaoh realises what he's done. This was their slave right workforce he'd just let go. These were the people who did all the hard manual labour for them. These were the slaves who made the bricks that built their cities. This is what the wealth of the Egyptian economy was built on. Forget recession, this was an economic disaster. We can't have this. And so the Egyptian army is sent off in pursuit to bring them back, to recapture them to enslave them again. But having worked this incredible miracle in the first place, you might think that the Israelites would remember what God had done for them. This isn't generations later. It's not even after 40 years wandering in the desert. This is just days after God has rescued them. The pillar of cloud and fire is still there in front of them as a visible reminder that God is with them. But almost immediately, they forget. They've not even got as far as crossing the Red Sea and leaving Egypt proper when the grumbling starts. As soon as they see the Egyptian army coming, they're moaning at Moses. You can just see one of them going to another. But what's happening? But what's happening? We're never going to get out of it. And then moaning to the next one. And then moaning to the next one. Can you imagine one of them saying, well, can we go and speak to Moses? They just can't see what God is doing. They want to go back to slavery, they say. Now don't be fooled. When they say they would be better off in they weren't. 
When it talks about slavery, this is real slavery that they were suffering. It's not just that it gets described as slavery in the Bible. It really was hard labour. They really were beaten to produce. We know right back at the start of the story of Moses, him being hidden in the basket because they were slaughtering the infant males. Yes? Moses had to escape into the desert because he killed an Egyptian for beating a slave. This slavery was real slavery. But they started to say, we were better off in Egypt. Because they had no expectation that God would save them. They had no expectation that God would protect them. They had no expectation that God had a plan. They just panicked. Of course, God did have a plan. God would protect and save them. Moses stretched out his staff and the sea parted. And they were able to escape across on dry land. And then the sea closed behind them, drowning the Egyptian army. And they were safe. There have been those, apparently, who have said, well, it wasn't the Red Sea proper that they escaped to. It was just a, a, a boggy area and they were able to walk through it. It wasn't really a miracle that they escaped. But others have pointed out that if that's the case, then the Egyptian army must have all been drowned in what was just a boggy area. There was definitely a sea that they escaped from. There was definitely a miracle to save them. And in the story, if you read on into chapter 15, for a brief moment, the Israelites recognise that miracle. And they sing a song to celebrate the mighty act of God. There's no grumbling for a day. But it is just for a day. By the third day, they were already starting to moan and grumble and complain again. This time, it's about a lack of drinking water. Oh, we're out in the desert, we've got nothing to drink. They found a pond, but it was salty water. Oh, we can't drink this. But Moses listened to God, telling him to throw a stick into the water. And when he did that, the water became sweet, and they were able to drink from it. So they found something else to moan about. Oh, we've got no food. At least in Egypt we had food. We've got no food. So God provides them with food. Manna. Each morning when they wake up, bread just lying on the floor, ready for them to collect. Enough for them to never go hungry. Yes, again they start moaning, oh, we've got no water. So Moses strikes a rock with his staff and water pours out of it. Then they get attacked by the Amalekites. So a small army is sent out to battle the Amalekites. And all Moses has to do is raise his hands and they win. Lowers his hands and the Amalekites start to win. So he raises his hands again and they win. God is with them every step of the way. 
providing for them, caring for them, saving them. And it's clear for them all to see, if only they'll look. But they don't. To the Israelites, it's not just a case of calling the grass half empty instead of half full. As far as they're concerned, the grass is empty, or it's, it's just salty water in there that they can't drink at all. They're so negative in their outlook. They just moan and groan and grumble and complain. Because despite all the evidence of their own eyes, they don't have any expectation that God is there for them. Now much of this relates back to the problem of barriers and mindsets that we looked at last week. They had been slaves for generations. They had been slaves for so long that they got into a slave mindset. They struggled to see anything else. They found a strange kind of comfort in the familiar, even though that familiar was a life of slavery, of hard labour, of being beaten and abused. They found some kind of comfort in it, in the way that today you hear stories of, of people in domestic abuse situations who can't leave because they just kind of feel trapped in the situation. They, were, they were, couldn't see any way out. There was also a kind of a fear of the unknown. It very much was a case of better the devil you know. Yes, it might have been bad. But what's out there in the desert might be even worse, they thought. They were trapped in this mindset. And it led to them developing a dependence purely on themselves, rather than on God. Even when God did provide for them, like he provided manna fresh every day. And he told them, it will be there fresh every day. You don't need to collect two days' worth, because there will be more tomorrow. But they didn't quite trust that. They wanted to provide for themselves. They wanted to gather extra in. They took more than they needed for the day. It didn't work, of course, because when they woke up the next morning, it had all gone packeting. Because God was trying to say, trust me day by day.
calls you would say are unusual, be it Gideon or David or Paul. It always makes what we might think of as strange choices. But Moses really was a strange choice. When Moses said to God, don't beat me, I'm no good at public speaking, God actually agreed with him and said, yeah, I know you're not very good at public speaking, I know you're not a charismatic leader. I'll get my heir on your brother to do all the actual talking for you. Yeah? So what was it about Moses? And Moses himself moaned a bit, yes? We find him shouting at God. He's mainly moaning about the fact that the Israelites are moaning. But he was different in one important way. Throughout all of this, he was obedient. He lifted his staff so that the sea would open for him. He struck the rock so that the water would flow. He lifted his arms while Joshua battled the Amalekites to the point where he got so tired he had to have Aaron and her hold his arms up for him. But he knew he had to do it, and so he was obedient. He knew he had to do it because he expected God to work through him to achieve these plans. And I think he was able to do this because he was looking at the longer term view. It's true to say we shouldn't live in the Spending all our time dwelling on the past and reminiscing is not healthy. We shouldn't constantly be harking back to the olden days. We can't do anything else, our memories can play tricks on us. If we spend all our time looking backwards, it can stop us moving forwards. It can stop us living our lives today. And similarly, we shouldn't leave our lives in the future, always just dreaming of what might be, of putting things off until tomorrow, until things are better. Apart from anything else, if we're just dreaming and putting things off, things are less likely to happen. Those dreams are less likely to come true. But while we shouldn't live in the past or the future, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. While we should live in the now, we need to live in the now with an eye on the past and the future. The Israelites were so focused on the here and the now that all they could see was their current problems. They were so focused on the chasing Egyptian army or the lack of water or where their next meal was coming from. They couldn't see what God had done for them in the past, and they couldn't see what plans God had for their future. Almost instantly, they were forgetting the wonderful miracles that God had performed to rescue them, to provide for them. It didn't occur to them that if God could save them from Pharaoh, he could save them from anything. If he could open a route through the Red Sea, nothing could get in their way. If he could make water flow from a rock and bread appear on the ground,
they need you. And they didn't have the patience to wait for his promises, his covenant promises to be fulfilled, the promise to take them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a promise that everything would work out in the future. They were so busy staring at their feet that they didn't look up and see the horizon. But Moses did. He remembered what God had done. And so he trusted God to deliver. He remembered God had saved them in the past and so expected them to expected him to save them in the future. He knew God had provided for them in the past and expected God to provide for them in the future. He's looking at the bigger picture rather than just the immediate situation. And he was able to do this because he drew near. He met with God. He talked with God and spent time with God. And in doing so, got to know God. At first, he wasn't sure. At first, he took some convincing. But as time went on, and as he drew nearer to God, he knew God better. He had more examples of when God had saved them and provided for them, and so he found it easier to trust God. His expectations were rise of what God could and would do in his life. His expectations of what God could and would do through him to liberate a whole nation from slavery and bring them to the promised land. And this is true for us too. God has a plan for our lives, a plan for our salvation. He will provide us with everything that we need. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. And that applies to you and it applies to me. We can raise our expectations that God will save us. We can raise our expectations that he will provide for us. We can raise our expectations that he will answer our prayers. We can raise our expectations that God will work through us to impact our families and our friends, our colleagues, our communities, and ultimately the world. So three things that we can do, three practical things. The first of these is share the past. Share what God has done in your life. We need to remember all those things God has done, but more than just remember them, share them with others. At times it can be hard. At times we may feel as if we are just slaves, slaves to fortune. Or we may feel as if we are lost in a desert. But at times we may struggle 
was in the age of communion. And part of the communion service, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, says, great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We remember the miracle of Christ has died. We can draw near to him now because he is risen and alive. And we can trust for the future when he will come again. This morning, we're going to be using the Methodist Covenant Prayer. Now, having grown up in the Methodist Church, this is something I'm very familiar with. We use it every year, at the start of the year. And it's a great prayer of committing ourselves. In it, when we come to it, we will say the line, Let me be employed for you, or set aside for you. There may be a few of us who, for a season, God is saying, yes, I'm setting you aside. I don't have a job for you, just rest in me. But for most of us, he does have a task. He does have something that he's calling us to. It could be different for each of us. It could be that we're being called to go to Uganda, like Ron Vicky Wright, or to Bosnia, like Becca. We're being called to some enormous missionary task. Or likely that we're being called to something here in Coventry, be it getting involved in the kids' work or joining the musicians. Could just be talking to our neighbour. But the very fact that we have that line laid aside for you in there is an acknowledgement that God is in control. The fact that we can trust Him, He has the plan. He knows what he wants us to do. We can trust in him and what he is calling us to. We have the example of everything he's done for us in the past. We can expect for what he will do for us in the future. We just need to draw near to him. 